If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, we'll be reading the entire chapter. Ephesians 1, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eye of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and that is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things in the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Great are you, O God, and most worthy of praise. There is no way We can ever fathom all of your greatness. That is why we need your word to remember all of your mighty acts. Granted us this morning the ability to hear your truth. Give us the grace to take that truth and make it a part of our lives. We thank you, O Lord, for all of your grace and mercy. We help help us to ascribe to you all glory. In Christ's name, amen. The reason 
for introducing you to this wonderful book of Ephesians is not to bore you with all of the mundane facts surrounding who wrote it and to whom and even why, but to introduce you to the spiritual message of this book. This book reflects in the deepest, most wonderful way the greatest message of redemption delivered in the whole of the biblical revelation. No other book searches as deep as Ephesians the mysteries of our salvation. There are two parts to this book. For the first three chapters deal with the mystery of the doctrines of salvation. The last three chapters deal with the application of those doctrines in our lives. In Paul's day, the world was full of wickedness, some of which was so bad as to be almost unspeakable. No matter how hard men tried, they could not stop it. Men were without hope. If you examine our world today, you will find it is not even a little different from Paul's day. Throughout the history of mankind, they have used many different ways to try and control wickedness in society. Such things as improving living conditions, education, psychiatric help, making the environment more pleasing, and passing harder laws and punishments. We can look back at the many societies that have existed over the centuries and see that not one of them was successful in building a lasting society. You cannot totally deny that some of these things might very well help, but you cannot expect they are an end unto themselves. The great danger that comes with all of man's efforts to solve the problem of sin in society today is governmental totalitarianism. That is looking to the state to solve all of our problems from the cradle to the grave. This will only lead to the loss of our sense of freedom and individual responsibility and initiative. I think it's obvious we're struggling with this tyranny today. We seem to have come to the point that we are dropping all these worldly efforts and just letting society rule itself. All of these efforts fail in recognizing the basic need of men. The load of guilt each one of us carries around. We carry it because of our rebellion against our Holy Creator. The weight of that load is our worst problem. The greatest need any man has is found in the weight of sin and guilt. Paul addresses this in Ephesians 2.3 among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath as the others. All men, all men are oppressed by sin. They are all under the threat of God's wrath. The removal of this threat is man's greatest and most immediate need. He does not need an environmental change. He needs reconciliation with God. Paul, in this letter to the church at Ephesus, proclaims, For all who will by faith believe on Christ have this great freedom. It's provided by means of Christ's perfect life, his atoning death, and his resurrection victory. What caused God to do all of this for fallen man? His great love. There is another misconception working in the world today in regard to the relief of man's misery. It's that man's happiness can be found in a program that works from the outside in, 
You can really hear the proclamation. Improve the environment. And man's inner condition will be improved. According to Paul, man's inner condition is not such that it offers itself much hope in this way. In Ephesians 2.1, we're told man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Without Christ Jesus, man is shown in Ephesians 2.3, living in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The very essence of this letter is to answer the question, how can man be saved? Obviously, at least to Paul, it requires an act of God to save man. Simply to remove the guilt of his sin will not do it. Some today teach you can receive Christ as your Savior. Then go on living your life in the same way you were before making Christ your Savior. They say you can do this with confidence, expecting to to enter heaven. But that's not what Paul teaches in this letter. He speaks of sin often. And he says it is this sin that is the root of the problem for man. It is the sin itself that must be removed. The very urge to rebel against God must be taken away. This requires a supernatural work in the heart. There must be such a change in the heart so as to change the very desires that come from it. There must be a renewed, a renewing, a continual, ever ongoing transformation that can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit taking a permanent residence in our heart. That causes a reaction to begin within and work its way out. Therefore, the person begins because of the internal changes to renew his environment, calling his surroundings to function for the king. Christ said this could not happen unless he was crucified and returned in victory to his father. Why? Because this regenerating and transforming work of the Holy Spirit was made possible only by the death of Christ Jesus. Paul makes this abundantly clear in his prayer for believers in Ephesians 3 verses 14 through 19. To be saved, one who is spiritually dead must be made alive. One of the questions that must be considered, and Paul considers it in this letter, is does this in any way affect human responsibility? The answer is yes, it does. Some want to say it totally removes human responsibility, but that's not true. It rather increases one's obligation to give his life over to his Savior. As a believer, you should, as the object of God's sovereign favor, be strengthened in your indebtedness to the love shown you. Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. You're to love Christ. Why? Because he has first loved you. Your obedience is an expression of your love. Along with this is the implied message of loving one another in being drawn by God's grace. The one being drawn is through this process made more akin to others who are likewise being drawn to Christ. It's like moving down the spokes of a wheel from the outside to the inside. 
the closer you get to the hub, the closer you get to one another. Thus, Jew and Gentile, black man and white man, the American and Chinese, drawn to God, are also drawn together in Jesus Christ. There are no ethnic, national, or race boundaries in the kingdom of God. All are removed by the same cross that brought peace between an offended God and the offending man. It was this very cross that was a stumbling block to the unregenerate Jew and foolishness to the unconverted Gentile. Paul in this letter shows this divine mystery that all men are made one in Christ Jesus. In the last half of this great book, we come to see a new day has dawned. Dawn for all who have given their lives and hearts to Christ and to the influence of his spirit. Therefore, it's to be understood that the fruits of light, righteousness, truth, and goodness should manifest themselves in your life. What Paul intends to show in the latter part of his, this book is that virtue derived from the Holy Spirit consistently drives out sin from one's life. This is what drives wickedness out of Paul's world and ours. Christ has provided a way out of this wickedness and sinfulness of this world. The responsibility, the responsibility to make men see this way has been given to the church. The church must hold forth the true message of salvation. She must guard her pulpit. She must remain ever true to the only commission she has ever been given. She must raise her voice in the great hymns of salvation. She must preach salvation by faith alone in Christ if she is to overcome the pagan anthems of doubt and unbelief. Yes, pagans sing songs, but they're songs that are hollow sounding and with no depth. It is the true church of Jesus Christ alone that sings hymns of truth and love. Its daily life is to be a walk of truth and love that imitates God. It is to firmly be united in Christ Jesus and engaged in the defiance of Satan and all of his hosts. She takes up the spiritual weapons of God and stands firm in her love of him who has saved her. This work of the church will never fail. For it does not come from the minds and hearts of men, but from the sovereign God. Paul covers the internal workings of the universal church. He deals with its eternal foundation, its universal scope, its lofty ideals, its organic unity, its, its, its amazing growth, its glorious renewal, and its most effective armor. The great purpose of this church is to serve as God's agent to bring the message of salvation for the glory of the triune God. With the time I have left, I want to look at the first two verses of chapter 1, which consist of the salutation to the readers of this letter. First, we will consider the author. Second, we shall observe the divine appointment. Third, we will look at the recipients. And fourth, we will hear the salutation. We will break verse 1 down into three separate studies. First is the author, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. We begin with the phrase, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
This establishes the writer of this letter as the apostle. Now, I'm sure you've all heard it. There are some liberals out there who have tried to discount Paul as the author, but they come off looking very, very foolish. Just to acquaint you with their foolishness, their reason for saying this could not be an original work of Paul is because of its closeness in content to Galatians. Wow. They believe someone must have taken Galatians and copied it in their own words coming up with Ephesians. Yes, there is a great deal of similarity between the two. They both deal with the mystery of the gospel, but Ephesians goes much deeper than Galatians in a slightly different direction. The theme of Galatians is justification by faith alone, while Ephesians is the unity of believers. Why is so much of the two familiar? I thought it was pretty simple. They both, the same man wrote both. Paul always begins his letters with a salutation and closes them with a benediction. We generally follow that pattern in our worship service. We begin with a call to worship and invocation, asking God to enter with us in this worship service that he might bless us. We ask him to remain throughout the service and at the close to leave with each one of us. Paul's letters are very much on the order of our worship service. God is clearly speaking to us as his church in this letter through the pen of his apostle Paul. As the Holy Spirit carries Paul along, ministering in his heart, he opens his mouth and blesses him with this most glorious picture of Christ's church. Paul is the author of this letter. He is not just someone who all of a sudden had an idea and set it down on paper. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is a man who has received his call directly from Jesus Christ. He thus belongs to Christ and represents him in such a way as his message is Christ's message. The marks of an apostle were clearly on him and the work he did. The second part of verse 1 is the divine appointment. It says, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He came to this office by neither aspiration nor through usurpation. He came not by nomination of men, but by divine preparation. This office is not his because of his own will. If we might look at Galatians 1.15, he makes it very clear. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Throughout Ephesians, it should be clear. Paul views the sovereignty of God as essential to the understanding of the gospel. He will show that not only was it God who chose him, but it was God who has chosen in Christ. Everyone that is a Christian, it is God who has predestined us all. Our salvation began with God's purpose to save us. Without God's predetermined plan of salvation and his willingness to execute it, salvation would not exist today. It is God who in the beginning so loved the world. It is God who sent his only begotten son made of a woman, made under the law. Your salvation is all of God and according to his purpose. It is, as was Paul's calling, according to the counsel of his own will. It was through this counsel that all of these wonderful things happened. 
Paul was a man, a man set apart from other men for a special purpose. That purpose was to reveal to all who would hear and believe the great and wonderful mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No other man, apart from Jesus Christ himself, had, had, has had as much of an impact on the message of salvation given in the scriptures as this man Paul. I have heard so many try to disregard Paul and his importance to Christianity. No other apostle has received as much bad press as this man Paul. The reason should be clear. Paul was given the deepest understanding of this glorious message. When men can't fight the message itself because of the conviction it brings to their own hearts, they attack the messenger. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul, a man set apart as a special messenger of the love and grace offered in Jesus Christ. Should the works of Paul then have an equal weight to those of Christ himself? The answer is a definite yes. Paul, in everything he writes, stands as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. The words he writes are the words of God himself. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote. The very thoughts and words penned were given him by God. This book of Ephesians, as well as all the other books Paul wrote, are God-breathed and must be recognized as equally important as any other word from any other book of the Scripture. The third part of verse 1 is the recipient. To the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Who are saints? Some would say they're perfect people, people who never do anything wrong. Many today think saints lived a long time ago and one couldn't possibly be known today. The Holy Spirit surely knew that this kind of idea would arise, so he adds this explanation. The faithful in Christ Jesus. A saint is nothing more, nothing less than a person who has placed his trust for salvation exclusively in Jesus Christ. Saints are saints because of one thing, and one thing alone, their union with Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with how well they live their lives. Throughout this epistle, you will be reminded of this fact when Paul speaks of being in him, in whom, in his beloved, in Christ, or in the Lord. It is by virtue of union with Jesus Christ that a person, be they from the first century or the 21st century, is a saint. You as a believer by this union receive every spiritual blessing. The first and most basic of those blessings is election from before the foundation of the world. It is redemption through the blood of Christ, certification as sons and adoption as heirs. If it was not for your connection with Christ, a very close and intimate connection, you could not be called a saint. Your present life of faith must be centered in him, as Philippians 1.21 says, for it to me to live is Christ. If this is true for you, then you have come to understand. You now love him because he first loved you. This is the very essence of the life of a saint. This is to whom Paul has addressed his letter. 
He has addressed this letter to all who hold dear the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He adds to this explanation of himself and his readers a word of encouragement. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in these few words, Paul gives a preview of what this letter is going to be about. There are no more important words in Christianity than the words grace and peace. Yet, too many use these words with very little understanding of their importance. Grace is the beginning, the beginning of what Christianity, of what, the, of, of what is going on in Christianity. It gives us a great place to begin building. It's grace. It's the beginning. Peace is the end of our faith. Grace is the beginning, the source, the origin of the Christian life. Peace is what the Christian life produces. So we have a beginning and an end, the alpha and the omega of the Christian life. So it's very important that we gain a sound understanding of both grace and peace. Because they form the boundaries between which everything else in the Christian life stands. Jesus Christ is the source of both grace and peace. They were given him by the Father. So he in turn gives to all who believe and trust in him. Paul makes this abundantly clear throughout this letter as he shows you that you are saved and living in Christ. Grace brings you in. Peace settles you down and keeps you eternally safe in him. What is this grace that saves? It's simple. It's unmerited favor. You were a sinner, spiritually dead, lost and without hope, until grace was extended to you by God the Father. You were a rebellious sinner, unworthy of anything from God, but God reached down. He reached down through the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And he picked you up And he gave you a place in his only begotten son. He imputed to you a new worth, a worth earned by his son on Calvary's cross and made you into a new creature. This was grace because there was nothing in you to make you worthy. What is peace? Peace is a very misunderstood term. We think of peace as the cessation of war. This would be the primary way we see it as the end of quarreling and fighting. But there's much more to it. The Greek word for uh, peace, irene, literally means union or union from separation. So the meaning is to stop the fighting and bring the two parties together in reconciliation. Not just stop the war, but you've got to bring them together in reconciliation. One of the main points in Ephesians is this union after war. Jesus Christ has not only come to end the war, but to bring reconciliation. In Ephesians 2.14, we're told, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. This is a covenantal idea, and it's well developed in this letter. Two parties being brought together and the one, the the thing that has divided them has been done away with for all of eternity. The peace is what causes your sin to be thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. To be cast as far as the east is from the west. 
These two concepts of grace and peace make up the groundwork that Paul is laying as he presents the great doctrinal truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this letter. I hope, I pray, that you will give careful attention as we study this book and will open your hearts and will allow God's truth to change your lives and bring to you, through grace, this most wonderful peace. This letter is one of the deepest, one of the most profound of the books of the entire Bible. It has to stand right beside Romans in its presentation of the deepest of the secrets God has revealed to us. It presents without any apologies the reformed message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It also presents a covenantal message of one covenant of redemption concluding with God's sweetest words. You will be my people and I will be your God. It shows the total worthlessness of man in his natural state. And it shows the wonderful transforming grace of God in some men for their state of, from their state of spiritual death. It go, does not hide the responsibility that belongs to each believer in the, to live this Christian life. But makes clear it is a responsibility of love and not an obligation to earn salvation. I hope and pray that everyone under the sound of my voice has understood that salvation is a gift of God, not a reward to be earned by man. It requires more than a mere acknowledgement of God's offer of grace to be saved, but a complete surrender of one's life. You must turn your life over to God, to Jesus Christ. He sent Christ into this world to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He came to live that perfect life you could never live to die the atoning death that you required but couldn't afford, and to win the resurrection victory to open heaven's gates so you could come in. Please place your hope, your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. If you're hearing for the first time this wonderful offer of grace, then let me tell you how to respond. Acknowledge your hopeless, helpless, and worthless condition before God. Let God know you understand who you are and what you are before him. Look to Jesus Christ alone as your way of escape from this terrible condition of sin and guilt. Call out to him with a broken and contrite heart. He has promised. He will hear all who call in such a way, and he will lift them up, and he will make them his own. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning because our hearts have been made alive, our spirits renewed, and the Holy Spirit sent into our hearts. In Revelation, the angel said, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He goes on to add, These are the true words of God. How blessed we are, Father, to have our lives hidden in you. You, the unchangeable God, the sovereign, almighty, ever-present God, who has invited us to your home, receive us in all of our weaknesses, and reveal us in all of your strength. We thank you for all of this. In Christ's name, amen.